From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, we bring you Visa acquiring Tink, the FCA ban on Binance, and a Federal Reserve official warning that CBDCs could be an embarrassing fad and comparing them to MC Hammer's trousers. All this and more on today's show. But before we start, we just want to tell you about something we're cooking up at 11FS and a quick word from our sponsors. Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest performing banks with cost income ratios, which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com. The first 11FS Foundry drop is here. We call it 11 Money. It shows non-banks, challengers and established banks what we think is possible. It's our here's one we made earlier version of a neobank and fintech deposit account that you can use as is or customize to shape your own product. 11 Money lets you add fintech experiences to your offering and empowers your developers to customize and embed within any experience. With 11 Money, you can build fintech experiences in weeks, not years, and you can request a demo today at 11fs.com forward slash foundry. Welcome to episode 542 of Fintech Insider. My name is Ross Gallagher and I'm joined by my 11FS colleague and co-host, the one and only Sarah Kuchensky. How are you doing, Sarah? I'm well. I like that intro. I I feel very special. Yeah. Well, it's absolutely apt. Looking forward to uh, looking forward to the show, Sarah. Yes, absolutely. And of course, we're not alone. Uh, we are, as ever, joined by some awesome guests. Making his Fintech Insider debut, we have Joachim Schaublum, co-founder and CEO of Mina Technologies. Um, Joaquin, welcome to Fintech Insider. You join us from sunny Barcelona today. How are things over there? Indeed. Thank you, Ross. So I'm just out of my first physical event in 18 months. So enjoying the, the hot weather of Barcelona and going back up north tomorrow. Yeah, it must be quite a uh, quite a novelty seeing people in person again. Indeed. All right. And alongside Joaquim, uh, also making his Fintech Insider debut, we have Gabriel LaRue, co-founder of Primer. Um, Gabriel, welcome to Fintech Insider. It's been a, a huge week in the payment space, which we're excited to discuss with you. But how about before we start, you give the, the listeners a, a quick overview of Primer.io and what you guys are up to? Sure. Thanks. Um, well, thanks, thanks uh, Ross, and uh, great to be here today. So at Primer, we are uh, an end-to-end automation platform for payments. We started the company over a year ago now. Um, we have operations in the EU, UK, US, and uh, South Asia. And essentially, with our unified uh, framework for payments, uh, online merchants can activate uh, payment services such as Klarna, Riskified, Cardless, and many more uh, in just a few clicks. They can also create sophisticated workflows. And most importantly, they can give their customer the best possible payments and checkout experiences. Really nice. Yeah, really valuable offering. And I think lots of uh, movement in this space as well, some of which we'll uh, we'll touch on as we go through. So, uh, Gabriel, great to have you with us as well. Thanks. All right, let's jump straight in. So our first story today uh, comes from Reuters and concerns Visa's acquisition of the Swedish fintech Tink for $2.2 billion. So Visa said on Thursday it had agreed a... billion takeover of European open banking platform Tink, months after it ditched a planned acquisition of the startup's US rival Plaid, following a government lawsuit aimed at blocking the deal on antitrust. The deal is part of Visa's push to diversify revenues beyond credit card payments, where it is one of the world's dominant players. Card companies have been facing increased pressure from regulators on fees, especially in Europe. Under the agreement with Visa, Tink will retain its brand and current management team with its headquarters remaining in Stockholm, Sweden. Visa said that by bringing together Visa's network of networks and Tink's open banking capabilities will deliver increased value to European consumers and businesses with tools to make their financial lives more simple, reliable and secure. The transaction is, of course, subject to regulatory approvals and other customary closing conditions. So, 
Gabriel, let's come to you first on this, I guess, as a, a founder of a, a provider agnostic payments platform. What's, uh, what's your take on this one? Well, I think that the visiting announcement is, is sending a, an interesting message to the market and how, how important open banking uh, might become for the, the future of fintech and, uh, and payments. Um, with, with the recent attempts to acquire Plaid in, back in, in 2020, it is pretty clear that Visa had a, had a, had a focus on, on open banking, right? Um, it's worth noting that, that MasterCard also made an acquisition in this space last year with the uh, acquisition of, of Finicity in North America. Um, f- for me, the, the acquisition of, of Tink is particularly interesting as this is happening um, in Europe, right? Where open banking is already mandated by the regulators uh, as opposed to the US where it is essentially the market forces that are shaping how open banking is progressing. For the merchant, I think the notion of using open banking and more specifically uh, account-to-account payments is something that is being discussed more and more. At Primer, we, we help merchants expand their payment ecosystem. And as you would imagine, some of our customers are looking to use uh, account-to-account payments. Uh, and this for a multitude of reasons. They want to optimize costs. They want to increase conversion at the point of checkout. And I think for the card networks, this means you know that some card-related volume might be be lost, right? Uh, hence the uh, the recent move and and an acquisition of Visa. So yeah, very interesting move, and we m- might see a lot of movement in that market. Yeah, Joachim, I think as as Gabriel said, really really interesting move, and I think the market's very much trending in this direction. I guess. Do you see sort of benefits on both sides of this deal? Or is this, as sort of Gabriel was suggesting, very much a defensive play from Visa against losing market share? No, but I think the, the deal makes sense as a whole. Just looking at the, the e-commerce industry, especially has been dominated by cards for close to two decades now. And now looking at my own behavior, I do use other payment methods when I do consumption online. So for Visa to have a bigger piece of the pie in this new behavior, of course, they need to be part of account-to-account transactions. Uh, and by doing acquisitions, is, is one way of doing it. And Gabriel mentioned the, the MasterCard piece. Amex is also aggressive in terms of M&A. Uh, so it, they have a lot of money, and they need to make sure to not become obsolete. Uh, I think it, it all makes sense. Yeah, Sarah, what were your thoughts on this one when you read it? Yeah, I agree with you know with both of our guests. I think it, it makes a lot of sense. I think what we've had to add is that Visa is... Um, to my mind, quite behind both MasterCard and Amex in the A2A payment space. You know, MasterCard not only has its acquisition in the US, but here in the UK it owns uh, Link, Vocalink, um, which is a network you know that will enable it to very easily roll out account-to-account payments as and when you know when well, it already has started. But you know, it's a very easy way for it to get onto a network that's already established. Um, I think interesting for Visa to switch from the idea of a US acquisition to a European acquisition. Um, I completely agree with you know Gabriel's points that open banking is further ahead here. And perhaps it's more imperative that in Europe it gets this sorted. Um, I think to get back to my point about being it being further behind, obviously acquisition makes sense when you're behind. And why not acquire somebody who already has the connections, who already has the expertise and who already has the customers? So it could have decided to try and build it in-house. That wouldn't have made a lot of sense to me. Acquiring somebody who's already doing it and doing it well does make a lot of sense to me. I think my final point is that here in Europe, because we've had open banking and PSD2 around for quite a while, um, we do have an awful lot of reasonably mid-sized and quite successful infrastructure players in this space. And there isn't going to be room for all of them to continue to scale. So I think we probably will see a few more acquisitions, maybe some mergers um, in in this space as well, particularly when we're looking um, at account-to-account payments. Yeah. So Gabriel, I think Sarah's probably touched on it a little bit already. You know, we've spent quite a bit of time talking about what's in this for for Visa. You know, where's your where's your head at in terms of what, what what's in this for Tink? Well, I think you know, Tink will will leverage from the expertise um, of of Visa. You know, they've been working in the space for quite some time. They have a you know fantastic network and fantastic talents, right? So I think this is this is where Tink will will be able to uh, to gain a lot from from this acquisition. Yeah, and then uh, Sarah, I suppose going back to your point about the, the sort of competition in this pl- in this space, and not everybody's going to win, right? Do you, do you see this as Tink sort of, I guess, you know, solidifying their position in the market and partnering with someone with the the sort of scale of of a visa? 
Yeah, I mean, it totally, I mean, I don't know Tink's founders. I don't know what, you know, exit plans they had in mind when they started the company. I don't know, you know, what, what they their original or initial plans were. I, I know they've done a few things over the years, actually. I think they started off doing something slightly different and have kind of kind of moved into this space to become much more of an infrastructure player. So I believe originally they were kind of had a direct-to-customer offering and that space was, you know, really quite hard to get a handle on. So they, they, they moved into being this back-end player and that seems to have worked really well for them. I think this is a pretty good exit based on my understanding of the deal. I will be honest and say I haven't looked into the financials too closely. But if I was Tink Founders, I wouldn't I wouldn't be upset <laughs> that this was the outcome. I think, you know, it's 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 perhaps slightly slightly early, but you know, not so much so that everybody goes, oh that was a you know that that was too early. I think um I think we just have to see what happens next. I think it's be really interesting to see what Plaid does in this space, having going almost being acquired and then that obviously falling through not not through any fault of their own and then coming back and going well never mind we don't need you anyway we're going to go and do our own things bigger and better and and take over the world um so i think you know as we watch these players in this infrastructure space it's going to be interesting to see which which direction they go in which will be happy to exit and which will think no we're gonna we're gonna do it we're gonna take them on yeah i'm keen to sort of come back to that the plaid point and maybe dig into that a little bit more as well but Joaquim, I guess staying with the the sort of what's in it for Tink point, you know, they had achieved a, a good level of scale, you know, being used by over 3,000 banks and other institutions somewhere in the region of 250 million customers in Europe. They just raised more than $300 million. I wonder if you see any potential downsides, I guess, in them partnering with someone like Visa. Yeah, I guess I need to to tell this information for the sake of transparency. So Visa is one of our investors as well. So I can speak with a lot of first-hand information of why a company could benefit from this. And a lot of it comes back to what Sarah said. So Tink started as a B2C financial management app back in 2013, around that time. Uh, and they pivoted over the years to become more of this infrastructure and B2B software vendor. And when you're selling software into financial institutions, it is a cumbersome process. And there are very few companies in the world that does that better than MasterCard, Visa, and, and the likes. So I think Tink will have a great opportunity to scale. As mentioned, they're mostly in Europe right now. Uh, Visa is usually in America. They're usually in the APAC region. So if Tink can utilize the existing Visa clients to, to scale their products, uh, it's a strong, let's call it a channel strategy or a reseller approach for them to, to get a wider reach. Yeah. Absolutely. And they can really supercharge that scale now, right? They've got the right partner. Coming back to that, that plaid point that, you know, we raised in the story and that this deal now is subject to regulatory approval and those sort of closure processes. Do you see similar risks in the, in the Tink deal? Do you think this is going to get over the line? The European Union rules on open banking, you know, require banks to allow access to customer data by registered third party providers to boost competition. So I guess, Sarah, probably digging deeper into my question is there a risk here that this is seen as a sort of anti-competition and is there potential that a regulator might intervene on that basis i think there's there's always potential i wouldn't i wouldn't want to guess second guess any regulator in europe to be honest with you i'm never sometimes they make decisions that i'm like i don't sorry what where did that come from and i don't think i'm the only one i think there is probably less chance of there being any declaration of antitrust in Europe because there are so many other players here would be my would be my suggestion you've got you know just some names that come to mind you know true layer is one that comes to mind that visa is already invested in so it's possible that that um, and, and and to Joaquin's point as well it's possible that regulators may go yes there's lots of other players but visa has a finger in every pie so maybe maybe it's you know it's too much but my gut is that there's enough competition in the whole European market that this is less likely to run into trouble. I may be wrong. I have been proven wrong before. Yeah. I like the sentiment that that maybe in Europe we're less trigger happy than the US Department of Justice with our antitrust lawsuits. But no, I think the one thing that, that's definitely worth a, a call out is, is, is it's a, a sort of another Swedish fintech success story, right? I mean, we've seen some incredible headlines recently around client evaluations and you know we've seen iZettle being acquired by PayPal etc so I guess you know Joaquin final word to you on this one it's it, it seems to be a, a a thriving sort of fintech market there at the moment yeah indeed and just the final word on the likelihood of this going through it's interesting to see how the the European authorities looked at Google and Apple and the other big techs in terms of a uh, competitive uh, on the good side 
when Visa tried to acquire Plaid, it was the biggest trying to buy the biggest. And now it's an American company trying to buy one European company. So the dynamics is a little bit more beneficial right now for this to go through. And I usually make the analogy that account aggregation is the equivalent of electric scooters. There are so many companies in this. It's so much venture cap. So there are enough fish in the sea, so to speak. Yeah, a big enough pie now. I think that's a really nice point. All right, I am going to move us on on that note to our next story, which comes from Finextra and concerns Nordic mobile wallets, VIP, mobile pay, and Pivot to merge. So they're joining forces to create a single payments app with a combined user base of 11 million consumers across Finland, Denmark, and Norway. The new joint wallet will form the foundation of a cross-border payments network across the Nordic countries, processing 700 million transactions and comprising 300,000 merchants. The merger will create one of the largest bank-owned mobile wallets in Europe, with institutions behind VIPs owning a majority 65% stake. Mobile pay owner Danske Bank will hold a 25% stake an OP financial group, the backer of Pivo, will maintain a 10% interest. Under the plan, VIPs, the most up-to-date technology platform running on public cloud and independent of its bank owners, will provide the technical backbone and be expanded to meet Danish and Finnish requirements. So, Joachim, I'll come to you first on this one. Uh, what were your thoughts when you read this one? In short, I love it. Uh, I think real-time peer-to-peer payments should be subject to a global standard. And if this is enabling a a little more of a cross-country payments, that's just a good thing. So as a Swede looking at four small countries creating one Nordic region, well, I'm just uh, about 30 years of age making real-time payments to my neighbor, well, 100 kilometers to the west. It's just fully reasonable. And I'm surprised there is no technology to solve for this before. So I hope they can take it even wider. I would love to see a European peer-to-peer real-time payment system. No, I totally agree. And this is a really interesting use case that solves for, I guess, Sarah, some of the inefficiencies uh, that we all know and don't love associated with with cross-border payments. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me. I I can't I can't speak much to the Scandinavian market. I'm afraid I don't I don't know it well enough. Sorry to to, to comment on this particular deal, but I do think that cross border payments or, or cross currency payments should be easier. That said, we have to bear in mind that there are some quite a few in fact countries in the world where you still can't do real time payments in your own country. So, you know, the US is a prime example, but there are many, many others. Um, so I think the dream would be that I could pay, you know, a walking in Barcelona in, in Euro and then, uh, you know, somebody in Scandinavia in, in Krona, all of all of which in real time, all of which from one app. But I think perhaps we have to understand it's going to be slowly but surely. And I do have to credit the Scandinavians um, as a region or the Nordic region as a whole as being quite a long way in advanced of a lot of other people when it comes to payments innovation particularly you know the obvious example there is how quickly they've managed to reduce cash usage but um you know around that as well there's an awful lot of innovation in payments there that's happened very quickly so yes i'd love it to be quicker and easier but i'm also being a little bit i don't know i don't want to say pessimistic perhaps realistic no i think you make so many interesting points there i think the the domestic payment system point is such an interesting one i know the g20 uh, when they were uh the, the the Saudi Arabian presidency they made it a, a key priority to to solve for those inefficiencies um, in cross border payments and one of their most prominent sort of recommendations was that you need to improve those domestic systems at least to to, to remove the inefficiencies from that sort of last leg portion of those transfers not that that solves the rest of it. it's part of a bigger a bigger puzzle. Joachim, I think the other really interesting point that Sarah raised is, is, is the sort of the natural move towards cashlessness that we've seen in, in, in some of the, the Nordic countries. I, I wonder if you've got any specific thoughts on that as a, as a driver. Well, one thing with this uh, BIPs and mobile pay uh, merger, we should call it right now, is quite interesting that Sweden is not part of it. So the Swedish system of Swish have more than 80% of the, the people in Sweden using it. Uh, and it goes into your point, Ross, that uh, digital payments, uh, I think we're north of 95% now. Uh, and a lot of stores when I go downtown don't even accept cash. Uh, most of my colleagues who've been relocated from other countries, they never ho- held physical currency. 
so it's just very natural for me and I don't have that much more to say. I hope the world follows. Can I, can I give it as an example off the back of that? I was in Denmark a few years ago and um, I was on holiday with my mum my, my and she had bought some cash because, you know, her generation always takes some cash and when we thought we'd better use it. So I tried, to, I went to pay for a coffee and I, I handed over a, a note and the gentleman gave me back some change and, and some of the coins there, they have, they have holes in them. Um, they're quite small denominations, but they have holes in. And he gave it back to me and said in perfect English, because everybody in that part of the world speaks perfect English. Um, don't don't keep this. Don't try and spend it. The children here make jewelry out of these. They're so that's what they do with them. You you don't spend those. <laughs> this was this was I don't know maybe five years ago, and I was like, oh, okay, I'll take it home as a souvenir then. I, I think it's such a, a fascinating space, and, and and sort of that digital payments infrastructure exists and is 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 so advanced. I think in the Nordic countries that it sort of happened organically, hasn't it? That move towards cashlessness. Gabriel, what was uh, what were your sort of thoughts when you read this story? Yeah, I I, I found this very interesting. I would I would look at it more from a from a like pure online payment payments perspective, right? Um, at Primer, we've done like more than two hundred deep dive technical workshops with like merchants across the globe, and and the one thing that we know is they all want to expand their payment ecosystem, right? And enable uh, alternative, you know, slash local payment method. And you know they want to do that in a few clicks with, with a fully optimized checkout, right? And as we know, and I think Joachim um, touched upon that earlier on the uh, on the podcast, like merchants want to expand across Europe, um, and like the the fact that they want to have local payment methods is specifically something that you know merchants in Europe and South Asia want to do, right? And as you would imagine, this is a, this is a big challenge. And um, so I think you know the uh, the merger will. And most probably like trigger very interesting market dynamics with other wallet in the region and across Europe. I'm very interested to see how other wallets will react to that. Um, and I'm sure like it will foster like more innovation, right? Um, you know, online, in-store. So what's interesting to me as well is to see how, you know, other banks maybe in Denmark will react to this announcement and, and if it will trigger more collaboration and, and movement in that market. Yeah, I think that's a really nice point. Sarah, what do you think about the potential for this to sort of spur more innovation in this space and, and, and from different markets? Oh, I mean, it's an interesting one. I mean, I would I would hope so. Um, I think the thing that people do sometimes forget is how market-specific finance is, like, cultural differences are, are, are very are, are very present. You know, we, we just say the Nordics and, and people have a terrible tendency to go the Nordics or Europe or the US. And, and even within each of these regions, there are huge cultural differences when it comes to, I think, particularly money and, and consumers and how they use money and how they hold money and how they want to spend it and what they want to do with it. And I think when you're looking at innovation, what you have to be careful to do is to make sure that you're innovating for the market, the specific market you are trying to target. And so sometimes people can look at two markets and go, oh, the similarities, there's so many similarities. We'll just take this product and put it there because innovation has worked in one place. It'll work in this place as well. And actually, that isn't always the case. I mean, the example I always give on this is N26. So N26, very successful in Europe, you know, particularly in Germany, comes to the UK where we are very accepting and open towards towards digital banks, towards neobanks, and N26 just can't quite get a foothold. And a lot of that, I think, was to do with its marketing and the way in which it positioned itself and the way in which it presented itself. And the British people just didn't really get it. And obviously, N26 ended up, you know, pulling pulling out of the market. So I think when you're looking at sort of, yes, innovation, uh, other markets could look at this and go, this is inspiring. This is, you know, this is great. We need to do something similar. But if they're going to do something similar, that's the key word, it has to be tailored to to their demographics, their markets, whatever the weird cultural specifics are of, of wherever they're trying to launch it are. I, I think it's such a salient point. I think we are seeing this, these types of almost bridges in other places, but they do tend to have at least some cultural similarities. So we've seen China and Hong Kong try and do something similar. We've seen Saudi Arabia and the UAE do something similar. Just to follow up on, on Sarah's point here on domestic behavior, I think it's quite interesting to see that the three big banks now being OP Bank, Danske Bank and DNB in Norway, 10 years ago, they were quite heavy competitor. So Danske Bank have operations in all of these three countries. And I think it's great to see that these incumbents now join forces to understand those local differences and build a product that really solves a problem. 
So this attitude of collaboration between incumbents is, I really think it's an effect of open banking. They are forced to change their behavior, which is great for the market. Completely agree. Um, Gabriel, really keen to give you sort of last word, uh, any final thoughts on this one? Well, I think, you know, like it's it's definitely going to be something interesting to see more from a, an online merchant perspective, you know, how the uh, the experience is going to change across Denmark, Norway and Finland. You know, we help merchant activate those payment methods uh, at Primer. Uh, and I'm sure like, you know, the, uh, the collaboration between these three brands and products uh, will most probably like trigger some more adoption, but also like some some new interesting type of use cases. So very uh, excited by by this announcement. Excellent. Yeah, I think it is exciting. Um, I think it goes to the absolute heart of what I think we all agree is a, a really difficult challenge to solve for, but one that has so much friction. I just hope that these owners make something good out of it. We also see an incumbents acquire innovation and not make the best out of it. So I hope they get a real good governance to run this independent of the, the old organizations and, and make it scale. Yeah, no such an important caveat. I think we're all hopeful, if not necessarily optimistic, being ground down by <laughs> lots of potential, not really realizing the full opportunity. So I completely agree. All right, with that final point, uh, I am going to take us to a quick pause while you can hear from our wonderful sponsors. We'll be back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Visa's FinTech Fast Track program is a quick and easy way to connect to the Visa network and issue payment credentials. Whether you're an up-and-coming neobank, modernizing B2B payments, or launching a new crypto solution, amazing things can happen when your innovation is combined with the power of one of the world's largest payment networks. Learn more about the possibilities at partner.visa.com. Hey folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. All right, welcome back to the show. Our next story comes from Finextra and concerns Tide preparing to enter India with a five-year strategy. So uh, UK-based business banking platform Tide is to kickstart its international expansion strategy in India with a commitment to invest 100 million and create 1,000 jobs over the next five years. Good, solid round numbers. As a first step, uh, Tide has formed a partnership with RBL Bank who will provide the bank account infrastructure for its Indian operations. Users will be able to open current and savings accounts and access a set of ancillary administrative services. In January, Tide appointed Gurjapal Singh, formerly of local payments processor PayU, to build on this foothold and, and lead the business as CEO. The new jobs will be across a wide variety of roles, including product development, software development, marketing, risk, compliance, and member support. So to find out more about this, we spoke to Oliver Prill, CEO of Tide, to tell us more about the funding and how it will be used. So let's hear from him now. Really pleased to talk about uh, Tide and India. So Tide has selected India as our first international uh, market. It's a really hugely exciting market with 63 million SMEs around 10% of all the world's SMEs, and it's very, very rapidly digitizing. So it's an extremely exciting market. We've announced this week that over the next five years, we will invest over um, $100 in building Tide in India and create over 1,000 jobs. And this funding really comes in two parts. One, the market entry itself, so the building and the marketing of Tide in India, However, the jobs will come across a whole array of roles. So software engineering, product specialists, marketeers, member support, etc. And as such, we'll also support Tide globally. So we operate on one platform. We already got 200 employees in India, mainly in our Hyderabad Technology Center. And so part of the investment also goes into building that out and um, to, uh, to leverage the extremely good talent that is available in India to help us grow our platform globally. 
Great. All right. Yeah. Really good insight there from Oliver Prill in terms of uh, their ambitions for the Indian market. Sarah, I'll come to you first on this one. Uh, what were your thoughts when you uh, when you read this one? Yeah. So, so as far as I understand it, Tide's been sort of present in India for for nearly a year or so now. Um, certainly since since late 2020. And um, I is this really interesting market for for a UK organisation to go back to the point I've made on the previous story about cultural uh, cultural differences slash similarities. A really interesting market for a UK fintech to look to expand to um, as one of its one of its first expansion targets. I mean. India is full of SMEs. There are many, 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 many SMEs in India. So it's certainly a large enough target market, I would say. It makes sense from that perspective. Um, I think perhaps also from the idea of like building up a team out there and building a global platform out there and make, doing a lot of hiring, particularly on the tech side. Um, India is known for having you know this incredible pool of, of incredibly talented people, particularly in that space when you're looking at software development and engineering and, and all, all, all those kind of roles. So it's quite a good idea, I guess, to go to go to where the good people are. So, you know, that, that, that also makes sense to me. I'd be really interested to know, and I, and this, I'm going to be complete speculation, whether there was, whether there was any kind of government, UK government incentive for UK fintechs to look to India in particular, because I know there are for some other markets, Australia's one, and there are a few others, you know, across the Middle East. And it's part of the UK government's drive to, you know, as you keep, trade going post-Brexit and we won't go down that route because I'll get very angry. But I, I don't know if there was anything particular about, you know, that, that inspired Tide to make this decision. Um, I do know that a government minister came out and said, you know, isn't it fantastic? Isn't it wonderful? It shows the close ties between our countries, et cetera, et cetera. But what would be interesting to me is A, to find out if there was anything behind it um, and B, if we see more more companies following them. So, you know, a lot of the... Um, Neobanks and digital only banks in, in the UK have looked to the US as their first expansion markets, which from a language perspective certainly makes sense. But that's a market that is now really quite busy um, on, the, on the digital banking side, certainly. So I wonder where else they will look. And I wonder if we'll see more people looking to India. Um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know is the answer. But it does make me think it sort of triggers something in my brain, which means, oh, this is something to watch. Let's see who else does this. Let's see who else looks looks to that part of the world. Yeah, no, completely agree. And, and, and we actually had Tide on episode 496 where they uh, this intent was, I guess, sort of first announced that was back in January. And they said that, that India was important to them as a market due to their aim of being a global business bank. And in all of his own words, you know, to do so, you can't really get past India. You know, India's approximately 10% of worldwide SMEs. So a huge sort of market there to go after. And And, and, and of course, the point that you know, they already had a tech base and, and they sort of, you know, um, feel fairly confident that they actually have that local knowledge in the market because of the time that they've been there. But, but Gabriel, I, I, I'm keen to get your thoughts on uh, whether this makes sense, I guess, picking up on Sarah's point as a sort of testing ground and whether, you know, what are some of the difficulties, I guess, going to be in terms of localizing yourself to an Indian market? Yeah, I think this is this is very interesting, right? I mean, India is a fascinating market. You know, we've seen a lot of, of payments and fintech innovation over there, you know, on, on more specifically also on, on the wallet uh, type of things. And I think, you know, like as Sarah mentioned, like there's a lot of SMEs. There is, you know, in, very interesting uh, pool of talent over there in, in India. So, and when you look at sort of neobanks, it is true that, you know, culturally, like sometimes it, it can be a challenge to adapt. And the, the example of, of number 26 is one. And, you know, we've seen like neobanks, like, you know, really being successful, for example, in the US with Shine Bank, but, you know, with European player going there, like, you know, having more difficulties. I think, you know, the approach of, of having someone local from PayU, um, as, as, you know, you mentioned Ross, uh, with local expertise to uh, help with the expansion of Tide over there, will definitely like, you know, help with, uh, with launching the product. And, um, well, yeah, I mean, the, uh, the Indian market is booming right now with lots of interesting innovation in fintech. So I'd say like, this is a very, very interesting move. And I wouldn't be surprised to see other fintech, um, look to looking to expand in, in that part of the world, uh, very, very soon as well. Yeah. I, I, I love the point about, um, what's happening in India at the moment. And, and it really is just sort of that situation that that innovation space is just evolving so quickly. I want to kind of draw, Joachim, a bit of a, a Venn diagram with like our previous story. So we talked about sort of Sweden going cashless, very different drivers, but also India is moving towards cashless. I think there was a, a big push um, not too long ago around sort of demonetization, taking some of those 
bigger banknotes out of the economy to sort of limit the, the shadow economy and fraud, etc. But again, sort of moving towards cashless and they've, they've sort of opened up access to their underlying payment rails. You can now see all of your aggregated accounts under a single user ID. So the idea being that actually you can bring more people into the formal financial system by expanding that universal access to the existing payment rails. The question that I sort of want to ask is, how mindful do we need to be? Because I know it's a big concern in Sweden around cashlessness and that creating a new type of financial exclusion. People who don't want to engage with digital payment alternatives for whatever reason, how much of that do we think is an issue um, in this context? So I think we are past the breaking point in uh, in the challenges of a cashless society. Uh, so if I'm looking at my grandparents who are not comfortable using an ATM card, uh, they can't access cash. So the branch has already stopped accepting cash. Uh, it's just one or maybe two out of the big banks that handle cash at all nowadays. Uh, and uh, our services for, for elderly people and in um, uh, in the homes for the elderly people, they actually support with providing cash as need be. Uh, so I think the society needs to treat this new reality. I don't think you should maintain cash for the sake of maintaining it for a small group of people. Instead, we have a transition period where we need to solve for that minority group. Uh, the cost of, of managing cash is incredible for society. So uh, we're past that breaking point. Absolutely. The 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 cost, the, the, the risk, and, you know, we've seen it evolve quite organically in Sweden, haven't we, where, you know, merchants have just thought, well, if I don't have to, pick up all of those costs associated with with handling cash, then, uh, you know, organically they move away from uh, accepting cash as an option. Sarah, what are your your thoughts on that? And then I'm also keen to pick your brain on the sort of uh, the regulatory landscape a little bit in so far as there still doesn't exist any sort of digital banking license and actually the only route to market still in India is through partnership with sort of established banks. Right. Well, I'll take the easy question first. I think the um, I completely agree with Joachim on the the cashless point. Um, I am um, I've written about this a few times, and I'm I'm very conscious that as we as a lot of European societies move towards being cashless, there are people who can be left behind, and we can't leave them behind. Um, exactly to Joachim's point, that is not the reason. That is not a reason to not innovate. It's actually a reason to do more innovation. Okay, so how can we make sure we're providing solutions that cater to specific needs, particularly vulnerable people's needs? Um, one of the things that I always think about when we talk about this is, is cashless is one thing. But what about access to data? What about access to connectivity? What about access to the internet? So saying we're going to take away cash is one thing, but what happens if I don't have a computer at home, if I don't have a phone with any data, if if I'm a shop, because I'm currently in Wales, far out on the west coast of Wales, where there isn't any internet. So how can I accept cashless payments when I can't connect a terminal? I guess there are solutions for that. Yes, I know they're out there. But um, I think we just have to think about the problem holistically. And, you know, and, and, and as I, I would hope that it inspires people to come up with really creative solutions that help these, these vulnerable members of the population, you know, maintain uh, that, you know, themselves as part of society or, or stay within society and, and don't get excluded. Regulation. <laughs> wow. Okay. Indian regulation is you not... Can, you can nod that one over to Gabriel if you'd like. <laughs> yeah, Gabriel, how do you know, how much do you know about Indian financial regulation? Not, not much, I have to say. Um but I, I, you know, I, I think what well, what I've heard is you you surely have to like partner with someone like locally over there uh, to 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 get things across right, um, and that's probably like the the only way to do it now. But uh, I'll revert back to you, Sarah, if you, if you know more about Indian regulation. <laughs> Oh, so smooth. Such a return. Wimbledon here in the UK. So anybody who's a tennis fan will appreciate that. What I will say is that it hasn't ended too badly for the neobanks in the US who have partnered to get access to licenses. You know, I know that there's now talk over there about, you know, how, how they're going to change up. Obviously, the neobanks, digital only banks can are applying for charters. Some of them have been successful. Varo Money is the obvious one. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how that model develops. But to bring up Chime again, which was mentioned earlier, Chime hasn't done too badly off the back of a partnership model. So it kind of depends on on the rest of the dynamics of the market and kind of what that partnership actually looks like on a day-to-day basis. You know, how involved is the partner bank? Are there any systems relying on the partner bank? Because that can be problematic. You know, if the partner bank goes down, the customer doesn't know, nor frankly, do they care. Uh, they care their app isn't working and they can't make a payment. So I think it would be a case of what is the dynamic between the partners um, and how does it evolve, um, you know, as as more of these partnerships happen, if they do. And, you know, as I said, it, 
it hasn't ended too badly elsewhere. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's the end of the world. And for the startups, actually, it can be a boon. It's getting regulated, getting licensed is expensive. It's hard work. It takes time. And staying regulated takes even more time and money. So, you know, it, it could be it could be the best way for, for Tide to operate, really. Yeah, no, I think that's a really nice point. And um, I guess one thing just to tie the two previous points together for me is actually if you open up access and you open up the, the sort of innovation, then maybe actually you can uh, better solve through the sort of private sector, third-party innovators. You can better solve for some of the, the long-tail edge use cases that we sort of mentioned whereby actually cash is sort of enabling um, inclusion today. And I think um, that might be one to keep an eye on, especially since India is already um, open sourced access to those sort of underlying uh, payment rails. Joaquin, final word to you on this one. Just going back to the, the tide to going into India as a whole, I would be keen to understand how they map the risk of this move. So we moved into two new European countries during last year, and it's a lot of work. It's really challenges to understand the, the difference in, in the cultural behavior, in the financial behavior, and in language. Uh, if I, I'm not completely off, I think India has close to 40 different languages. So the risk level of going straight from the UK into India, it feels like a high risk, high reward game. But I agree with what Gabriel said, that if they succeed, they can put the new standard of how fintechs operate. So I love them to, to succeed, to change the order of how we scale. Gabriel, final word to you. Yeah, I think this is a this is a very interesting point that that Joachim mentioned, like you know how how you can adapt to you know cultural differences, and more specifically in the fintech sector. Uh, at Primer, we we have you know operations now in, in Singapore, and it was like you know very interesting for us to to see how online businesses were looking at their payment ecosystem and their payment stack, right? It is a very interesting market with a lot of different you know, preferences when it comes to payment methods. So, yeah, very, very keen to uh, to see how things will evolve. And and um, I'm sure we're going to read about this more in the coming weeks. But, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot to learn from uh, from Tide's move in India. All right. Well, then I am on that uh, sort of optimistic note uh, going to move us on to our next story, which comes from the Financial Times and concerns the financial watchdog banning the crypto exchange Binance uh, from the UK. So uh, the UK's financial watchdog has ordered Binance to stop all regulated activities in Britain and impose stringent requirements in a stinging rebuke of the world's biggest cryptocurrency exchanges. Binance Markets Limited is not permitted to undertake any regulated activity in the UK, said the FCA, adding that no other entity in the Binance Group holds any form of UK authorization, registration or license to conduct regulated activity in the UK. Binance responded that the FCA's notice has no direct impact on the services provided on Binance.com, since Binance Markets Limited is a separate entity. Brits are still allowed to buy, sell and hold cryptocurrencies on Binance's platform, meaning that activities in the country remain much the same as before. And this is because while digital asset businesses are required to register with the FCA under its temporary registration regime, a move that Binance has yet to complete, the watchdog has not yet determined how it will regulate cryptocurrencies. So I guess if people weren't comfortable with the regulation question on the previous story, they're not going to love this story uh, as a whole. But um, Joaquin, you came out of the, the previous regulation question fairly unscathed. So I'll uh, come to you for your thoughts on this one. Uh, I just got my fingers crossed that there will be no fintech hangover from this because crypto, a lot of it is innovation and it's a lot of the future is unknown. And if the regulator wants to take a bite at this one, it should not halt innovation for others. That's my only fear in this. Uh, I do think the regulators play a big role in this and they have a good purpose of existence. Uh, I'm just keen that this do not, let's say, injure the velocity of innovation within finance as a whole. Uh, and well, crypto, yeah, I, I think they will come to peace with it. If uh, crypto is to be seen as a fad or not, I don't think so. It might uh, change shape or form. Uh, at one day, the regulators will find the balance of things. Uh, and as mentioned, I just hope that this temporary hiccup don't uh, impact the wider fintech industry. Yeah, I, I think that's um, a really important point. I think two things for me, I guess. Um, people often lose sight of the difference between the actual 
crypto asset and then the underlying um, sort of blockchain technology. And I think, you know, perhaps there's much more potential for that underlying technology when you look off into the future than there is for those assets that sit on top. But but going back, I suppose, uh, Joaquim, to your point about regulation and, and perhaps that, that being slightly damaging, having a sort of um, a wider reverberation. You know, I think this is part of, of sort of wider efforts now to regulate the crypto space. We've seen the, the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision calling for banks with exposure to, to volatile cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin to face stricter capital requirements to reflect the higher risk. Uh, I think they went on to argue that the growth of, of these crypto assets has the potential to actually raise financial stability concerns. We've seen China clamp down on its um, cryptocurrency industry, its shuttered mining operations and ordered banks not to do business with crypto companies. So, uh, Sarah, what are your thoughts on on this and, and, and maybe how damaging this sort of regulation might be? Well, my initial thoughts are that the reporting on this story was so incredibly unclear. You know, I spend a lot of my time reading news. My my, my job is, you know, I'm, I'm head of competitor strategy. I spend a lot of time scanning the market. And um, I, I saw all these headlines that said FCA has banned Binance. And when I looked at it, I couldn't work out that they had actually done any such thing. <laughs> um, they had, you know, basically said Binance hasn't complied with the rules in the time frame that we set. So doesn't get the license. And as Binance pointed out, you know, a lot of the activities that people use it for in the UK are, are unaffected. So my, my first point would be people, if you're going to report stories around crypto, um, Bitcoin, blockchain, any of those things, please be careful in the language you use. Because a lot of people out there are, are getting into these, are using them as investments, you know, uh, are buying and selling cryptocurrencies. But a lot of them really don't understand what's going on. And if the media can't report it accurately, it really concerns me what impact that might have on, on, on a lot of the people out there who are perhaps trying it, experimenting with it, you know, aren't, aren't that well versed in, 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 in what is involved. Um, in activities related to cryptocurrencies. That was my my initial thought on it. Um, I think, you know, my my first thought on the, this particular, the FCA's particular decision is that I think it's trying to make a point. And I think perhaps it thinks that some of the uh, players in the cryptocurrency space have been uh, sailing a bit close to the wind. Um, and it sort of wants to make a point that it's going to put its foot down if it has to. I think, you know, it was also, as you say, following a lead that, you know, similar regulation, that's the regulator in Japan had had similar concerns around Binance. So I think it's probably, um, I think in this particular instance, it's probably both parties are playing it a bit close. So the regulator is being harder than perhaps it might be on somebody else. And Binance perhaps is being a little bit too liberal with its interpretation of the rules in the UK. And that's resulted in this sort of quite impressive clash. But yeah, I, I, I think that regulators are going to have to work out how to deal with companies in this space and how to work out the differences and the nuances and the intricacies, because I don't think it's going away. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think one of the things that really struck me when I read this story is uh, that the access to the faster payments um, and, 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 and card transfers um, was then sort of subsequently cut off. And it's not clear whether those two are linked. I think Binance said it was due to ongoing maintenance. It really brings into sort of sharp focus, I guess, the fact that, you know, with the, I think the notable exception probably of El Salvador, I can't think of any other country that accepts Bitcoin as legal tender. I mean, even Elon Musk now has backed off accepting it uh, as payment for, for Tesla's. So, you know, the reality is, you know, if you hold crypto, you know, to cash out, you have to find ways to convert it back into fiat currency. And I guess, Sarah, it plays to your point around consumer protection, and, and and I guess a wider point around whether people know or really understand what it is that they're actually investing in and what those associated risks are. I read a crazy stat this week, but um, Chainalysis estimates that 20% of the supply of Bitcoins has been lost by people losing access to their private key. And I, I don't know that people really understand those risks. Um I think we're due, we're probably running over now on this story, but uh, Gabriel, any any sort of points, any thoughts that are front of mind from you on this particular story? Well, I think, you know, m m like the last point that you just mentioned here, Ross, is is quite interesting. I think there's definitely a level of, of education that needs to happen in the crypto space, right? And we've seen a, a lot of interest uh, in crypto lately. And when we're talking to to our customer and merchant, they they are thinking about like accepting like crypto wallet as as a as a mean to accept payments. But I think this, you know, if this is happening, yeah, there is definitely a 
more information that needs to be shared on on the risk and and how to approach crypto. So yeah, and, and last point on this, like you know, as as Joachim mentioned, like I hope that this will more impact innovation in the space and more generally uh, innovation in fintech. So yeah, let's let's keep a close eye on this story and and how things will evolve in the coming weeks. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's exactly right. Okay, uh, I'm going to move us on. And in this part of the show, we want to quickly round up some of the other stories from the week that we didn't have time to cover, but that definitely still deserve a shout out. So uh, Sarah, do you want to kick us off? Absolutely. So the first story today is MasterCard and Antback effort to get a billion people to take green action. MasterCard, Ant Group and BBVA are among the big name financial and technology firms backing a new global partnership designed to encourage green consumer behaviour. The Every Action Counts Coalition has set itself a target of creating a billion digital green champions by 2025. Linking firms from the digital finance and e-commerce industries with experts in sustainability and nature and biodiversity conservation, the new network will share best practices in encouraging people to take positive green actions in their daily lives. For example, MasterCard is uniting its global network of businesses and consumers through a reforestation initiative, while Ant is encouraging users to adopt low-carbon activities in daily life, such as going to work by bus instead of car. I think, look, green is a trend. I am very aware of greenwashing, um, you know, the idea that, that companies come out and say, oh, we're doing all these things, it's amazing for the environment. And actually, when you dig down into them, they're perhaps not doing all that much. But if what happens is that because these big organizations are making a song and dance about it and appearing in the media, people do stop and have a think about their carbon footprint, you know, anything else that they might be able to do in their daily lives that might be better for the environment, then that's a good thing. I'm just very wary of any and all announcements like this because there's never enough detail given for me and there's never enough KPIs given like how are you measuring this how are you measuring the impact of this initiative yeah no absolutely totally agree I think so many of them are just so opaque or just so far off in the distance like 2050 that they'll just hope that we all forget uh, so hopefully uh, hopefully this isn't that all right our next story comes from CNN uh, Killer Mike's bank has to postpone its launch again to catch up to high customer demand, the grand opening for rapper and activist Michael Killer Mike Render's Greenwood banking platform has been postponed for a second time from July 2021 to early 2022. Greenwood's leaders say ensuring the digital platform can handle the influx of anticipated customers is also the cause for the latest delay. The company were hit with overwhelming demand for accounts following the murder of George Floyd when over 500,000 people signed up to open a Greenwood account before the company officially opened for business. In March, the company said it raised nearly 40 million in Series A funding from investors, including six out of the seven biggest banks in the US. So um, there's a huge amount of, of movement in this space at the moment. We've had First Boulevard uh, on the, the, the platform previously, who are also targeting the same demographic. I think this is where fintech and sort of broader innovation um, in the financial services space really comes into its own and being able to sort of service these niche segments and to deliver you know really valuable uh, propositions uh, to these guys of course this one is uh is 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 of heightened importance being part of a, a sort of much bigger global movement i'm really not surprised to see those uh, those sign up numbers um so i think yeah really exciting time for the 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 players in this in this space and uh hopefully they can sort of get it off and running on this newly announced timeline yeah what a nice problem to have Okay, the final one that we're going to cover in this section is that Softbank shrinks robotics business stops pepper production. SoftBank is reportedly restructuring its robotics business, SoftBank Robotics, and has already halted production of the Pepper robot. Robotics is just one of many businesses the Japanese giant has invested in, but potentially permanently ending production of Pepper is notable because of the robot's role as an unofficial mascot for the company. SoftBank Robotics reportedly plans to lay off around half of its 330-member team based in France and apparently half of the division's sales team in the UK and US. The company's official statement says it plans to keep its pepper business moving forward. However, production of pepper robots was reportedly halted last year and would be costly to restart. 
Well, I, for one, am very glad to see the back of Pepper. I think Pepper was um, really rather creepy and not particularly useful. I think there are a lot more interesting and exciting things that could be done with um, money from the likes of SoftBank in the robotics industry. So um, I, I actually think this is a win. I'd be very glad to never have to interact with Pepper at a conference ever again. And that's my final thought. Oh, poor Pepper is just going to be a relic in innovation centers and large organizations everywhere forever, isn't it? Right. Our and finally story this week, and we're going to bring uh, everybody back in for this one, comes from Finextra. The Fed official warns CBDCs, so that's central bank-backed digital currencies, could be an, quote, embarrassing fad, and compares them to MC Hammer's trousers. In a speech this week, Vice Chair for Supervision at the Bank, Randall Qualls, made clear that he thinks any US CBDC plan will need to clear a high bar to prove its value. Qualls began his speech by noting America's enthusiasm for novelty, invoking the baggy parachute pants trousers that briefly ruled in the 1980s, championed, of course, by MC Hammer. His main objections to the CBDC, aside from the novelty factor, were that the US dollar payment system is very good and that it is getting better. And second, that the potential benefits of a Federal Reserve CBDC are to date unclear. And that developing a CBDC could, in fact, pose some considerable risks. Yeah, I'll throw it to you then, Joaquin. All right, I need to confess that I did Google the MC Hammer trousers ahead of this call. It was a new terminology to me, but uh, but I get the reference now. Have we seen this pattern before with senior people and stakeholders making bold announcements about what is a fad and what is not? I've seen this pattern before that iPhone is a fad and internet is a fad and it might go away, but a part of it will come back in some shape or form. So I think it's you cannot neglect it. People need to stay ahead of the curve and understand what's coming and it might come back in a different shape. And then I think it's funny that he mentioned that there is a risk with a digital currency and the sentence before, he said that the US dollar system is great. If there is risk to anything, I think it's a cash-based society. Blood money, black market, all of it tied to cash. So I think it's less risky to move into a digital currency system than the existing system. No, I completely agree. And I think going back to what we talked about earlier with regards to international transfers, the SWIFT, you know, um, is you know, 90 something percent of international transfers today are conducted over the, the SWIFT network. And of course, you know, China is one of the very few central banks that has moved ACBDC actually out of pilot and is now live in the wild. And the reason that they're doing that is because they want to get a greater share of it, those international transfers. So I think you're right, there is a risk here of sort of standing still and going backwards. Sarah, what were your, uh, what were your thoughts on this story? Well, I, I don't know enough about CBDCs to comment on that element of the story. I do know quite a lot about US senators and um, and people in the US who are in senior regulatory positions making comments that come back and uh, haunt them later on. I was just trying to find the story and I can't remember, but a few weeks ago, there was definitely a very um, senior uh, person within, within the US um, financial space who basically said cryptocurrencies are bad because I googled them yes. um so I think maybe what we could do is create a book of these quotes and create it publish it in time for Christmas I, I think that that's probably my main takeaway um also I I don't think that MC Hammer's trousers really went away have you seen those yoga pants that people wear they are very very close to MC Hammer's trousers and if I may say so, they are very, very comfortable. So, you know, I think he's drawn the, the wrong comparison here. So we can say for definite then that CBDCs aren't a fan because those parachute trousers weren't a fan. I think the other really interesting thing about CBDCs is according to the Bank of International Settlements, I think over 80% of uh, central banks are actively exploring CBDCs. And, and, and fair enough, most of them are still in sort of early discovery or maybe pilot very few have moved beyond pilot. But that to me, Joaquim, and I think this maybe goes back to your earlier point, suggests that, you know, this is not a fad. If anything, it's it's a trend, you know, and it, it probably is a long way to run before it um, it actually plays out. But I think I think to refer to it as a fad might be uh, premature. All right. 
So that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. I'm going to go around the uh, virtual room now and ask you all where uh, your Twitter handles, LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera, where people can find out more about you. So uh, Gabriel, let's start with you. Well, yeah, thanks a lot, uh, Ross, uh, for having me today. You can find us on, on, on primer.io and, and you can reach out to me on, on my LinkedIn. It's my name, Gabriel Leroux. Yeah, thanks for having me today. Super, no, the pleasure was ours. Joaquin, same question. Yeah, indeed. So I'm going to avoid my very Swedish pronunciation. So I think you'll find my <laughs> my name in the notes down here. Otherwise, if you want to know more about what we're doing, visit minot.tech or minotechnologies.com. Excellent. And Sarah, how about you? You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Excellent. And as for me, I am also on Twitter at RossGallagher07. Thank you to all our wonderful guests. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast. And please don't forget to leave us a a review. It really does help us to make the show better. And it also helps others to find the show. I win with As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you very much. Goodbye.